that's not so hard. Hello ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to VUX World. On the road today, for the first time ever in life, uh, we have got two extra special guests with us today, Adam Banks and Konstantin Samoylov. Uh, ex-Google, currently at uh, uh, UX Study, and we're going to be getting into some real detail uh, with these guys, all about UX Study and their mobile UX lab, UX in a Box, which is epic. Uh, and we're going to be talking all about how to create usability studies for voice applications uh, and getting into detail about the tools, techniques, practices and stuff like that. Thank you very much for joining me. Uh, should we start by doing a little bit of intros, a bit of background uh, in terms of your uh, experience to date and, and how you've got to where you are with, uh, with UX study? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I worked at Google for 10 years. Uh, in my time there, I worked as a UX researcher, but in a previous life, I worked in audiovisual design. So I used to design cinemas and theatres and meeting rooms and okay. the, the technology that, run, that runs those. Mm-hmm. So you put those two things together, and for a long time I built and designed all of Google's UX research labs, right. as well as being a researcher. Um, I left a couple of years ago, and we formed this company, uh, and we now specialise in voice user research and building research systems and labs for people. Fantastic. So my story was, uh, I worked in Russia for about eight years, I gave lectures in, uh, in user experience research, then I created my own company, user experience research agency, mm-hmm. then I read everything I could read about Google and I decided that I want to work for a big project, so I joined Google, I worked there for about eight years, working on voice, uh, Android, search, emerging markets and multiple other projects. and. This is how we met in Google, and this is how we kind of start conducting both voice studies and experiments with usability labs. Because voice probably has voice studies have highest requirements for for the flexibility of the usability lab, mm-hmm. because you need to switch between people just talking, people talking to a device, people talking to a smartphone, yeah. people interacting with their, with a website, yeah, yeah. and people drawing and do card sorting, and you need to do it everything on the fly mm-hmm. if you want to share the actual experience with, with your product team. Yeah. So Adam built all, all UX labs in Google, which is more than 50 around the world. Yeah. Uh, we conducted more than a thousand sessions there, using all possible methodologies, and in the last couple of years in Google, uh, a lot of companies, uh, researchers from other companies, started to come uh, to our lab, asking how we did that, and we always wanted to forward them or to point them to another company, saying that just talk to them, they will build you a lab that, yeah. that works. And we're trying to find that company, and just didn't exist. So right. we were kind of forced to leave Google and create that <laughs> company. So we have it now. Wicked. So when, when was that then? On what sort of time frame was um, that? I left just over uh, around two years ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, so early <coughs> uh, 2016. Mm-hmm. And then you were just before me, weren't you? Yes, yeah, a couple of months before. Okay. Yeah. And then we've been doing this ever since. Yeah. And um, so tell us then a little bit more about UX Study and, and, and what it does and what you kind of spend your days doing at, at UX Study. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. <laughs> um, we mostly right now we mostly focus on building UX labs, and again, uh, 
there is a huge difference between building a lab as just equipment or space or architecture and building a research center where you can actually conduct a study and learn about the user behavior. Because where we saw the niche in the market is that in most of the cases, if you, if you go to a regular uh, audio-video company, they will just build you either a small cinema with a lot of cameras around or a big uh, meeting room, again, with a lot of microphones around. And so, those requirements are completely different. So we focus on the user experience of using a lab. Yeah. We, we, we're not very tech-focused. We don't come in and talk to people about, we'll use this camera and we'll do this and we'll do that. We can have those conversations with people, but when we first talk to a client, we talk about what methodologies are they going to be using? Mm-hmm. How do they want their space to feel? What mm-hmm. type of participants will they have? What type of research are they doing? Mm-hmm. If you're building a lab where all you want to do is desktop research because that's your entire project, Mm. then that needs to be a very different space to if you're doing VR research or voice research. Mm. What we try and do is build spaces that can work for everything in general, Mm -hmm. but you have to take a a sort of higher level approach and not so tech-centered. So we think of it in terms of how will the space be used, not what does it need to do. We, we learned a lot while, while we did that. So basically, almost all assumptions we had in the beginning, they were wrong. <laughs> like, for example, when we... Basically, we started with conducting research on researchers because right. the UX lab is probably the only case when the researcher is the user, yeah. right? Yeah. And we thought, for example, that the most important characteristics of the lab, characteristic of the lab would be functionality. People would need, like, moving views and the people would need to change and kind of scale, scale something. What we found is that by far the most important feature of the lab is the reliability. Right. Because both companies and researchers invest so much in, in conducting a study. Mm. If one study doesn't work, that doesn't mean that you can conduct the next the same study in the month yeah. or like in the week. Yeah. That means that a window of opportunity when your team waited for you is just lost. Yeah. So you, you missed a chance to improve your product. Yeah. And I was to mention right now is that the best lab like regular lab you can find it works in about like 80% of the, of the cases, mm-hmm. and people spend about 30%, researchers spe- mm-hmm. spend about 30% of their, of their time on either technical issues or editing the video yeah. or preparing the lab before the study. Yeah. You need to show up like a year, uh, sorry, yeah. uh, an hour uh, earlier to, yeah. to erase all the previous study to make sure everything works. Yeah. So our goal is to minimize that time and basically you can come to the lab five minutes before the study, you press the button, it works. Mm-hmm. As soon as you press the stop button, you, you, your video is ready. All the overlays, like introducing the participants, yeah. uh, logos, opening, closing slides, everything is already done. And you can start sharing your videos and creating a report. Yeah. We try and take as much cognitive load off user researchers as we can. Whatever type of research you're doing, whether it's voice or whatever, mm-hmm. we try and take as many jobs from you mm-hmm. as possible and automate them and simplify them and our goal is that the ultimate research system is a button or maybe not even one button we don't know that we're, we're heading in that direction yeah. instead of overcomplicating things we're oversimplifying things or rather just simplifying how research is conducted yeah. and trying to standardize it for people as well our ultimate idea is that whether you're renting a lab from someone or whether you have one in your company or whether you're going somewhere mm-hmm. the way the lab works is similar. Yeah. If, you, if you go back 20 years, look at the web, different sites worked in different ways, different browsers worked very differently. Mm. It's taken us a long time to be more coherent across the industry about how things are built. Mm. 
on, on one level it could be similar icons doing similar jobs yeah. uh, it could be affordances of, of, of things guiding you but in the technology we use as researchers it's still all over the place software is very disparate labs are very very different and work in different ways and have different features mm. we want to try and help to standardize that across the industry and is that where your idea and concept for the lab in a box came from yeah yes so we experimented a lot you could still see the first prototypes under the desk we can show like the huge, <laughs> huge yeah, yeah. like box there uh, and as, as as we said previously we learned a lot and like most of their uh, our initial assumptions were wrong Right. Like another example might be, um, we when we started to work, we analyzed trends in UX research to make sure we're not focusing on what people did yesterday. We're focusing right. on what people do now and what they're going to do in the future. Mm-hmm. One of the trends, for example, is that researchers tend to have dedicated observers in the observation room. So there used to be two people, yeah. one of them talking to the participant, another one is taking notes. Mm-hmm. Now it's rarely the case. It's a luxury to have a second person. Yeah. So that means that if you record something, you need to be able to, without being distracted from the participant, you need to be able to control the lab. And with traditional labs, it's just impossible. You literally need to crawl under the desk and change the cables or fix something. So our idea is that you should be able to conduct research without kind of breaking the contact with the participant Mm -hmm. and having full control over the lab. Like one click of the button, you know exactly how it works. You know that it's working at the moment, Mm -hmm. which is another issue. And... Being able to be as flexible as you need to switch between modes and share exactly the experience you, you feel in the, in the usability lab with your product team. Yeah. Otherwise, in many cases, it's just useless. You cannot come out of the lab in, like, in a white robe saying, it. the truth is, the problem is that. Because people are not going, are not going to believe that. Yeah. There's so many opinions in the company already. Just having one more it doesn't work. Yeah. Share, sharing what, how it feels, this is where the strength is. Yeah. And something that came out of our research on researchers, which we still do quite a lot of but we did a lot more of initially to to start this this project off and this company mm-hmm. off was people have a lot of trouble with audio mm-hmm. so if you're thinking about doing voice research you need to do very high quality trustworthy audio recording of what's happening in the space you're mm-hmm. researching in whether it's a lab or whether it's a corner of your office or whether it's at your desk mm-hmm. and one of the biggest problems people had is with audio capturing it at good quality. Mm-hmm. So we focus very heavily on that in the system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's fully automatic, so it manages all the audio for you. Mm-hmm. And so far, we have no issues in any of our labs, do we, that we build? And that, that helps a lot with, with voice research, obviously, but also in all research, you want the audio to be good. Yeah, 100%, yeah. What? Sorry. Uh, I was going to say that... Uh there are, again, as I said, there are a lot of things we learned. One thing was that convincing a company, like as, a, as an organization, to invest in the lab, mm-hmm. it's a separate issue. Yeah. And it's amazing because if every researcher spent about 30% of their time on, uh, on doing not research, like on technical, uh, technical work, mm-hmm. where they're not trained to do that. Yeah. Researchers shouldn't be, shouldn't need to, to know how to edit videos or how to care about audio for example what's yeah. the, uh, the frequency rate they need to, need to use and so on 
So that means that if you have three researchers, one of them is a technician, actually. Yeah. So you, every year you pay a salary for, for researchers, but one of them is not, is not conducting any research. Mm -hmm. So that means that take a salary for a year. This is how much you can invest to improve the lab, yeah. to build a lab that actually works all the time. Yeah. And you have three researchers again instead of just two. Yeah. And it pays for itself for, in, within a year. So there, there, there can be a very big return on investment for a research team to invest in their equipment, but it's usually hidden costs. The, mm. the costs there, when we talk about researchers spending a third of their time on other things, mm. that isn't a third of their week. It's mm. little bits here yeah. and there that all add up. Yeah. It's spending two hours editing that one session you did. It's having problems and delaying studies by two or three hours because you're crawling under desk. Yeah. It all adds up. And it, but it's hidden. It's not obvious to managers or directors or the people who make hiring decisions. Mm -hmm. So they don't see this, this hidden cost and therefore they don't necessarily appreciate the return on investment of um, a piece of equipment like we sell. Yeah. So what is, in your experience, Adam, what is the kind of recipe for an ideal research lab? It depends what you're doing, but <clears throat> um, the biggest thing is on focusing on the the feel and the comfort of the space mm -hmm. to it helps researchers to feel more comfortable and it certainly helps your participants mm -hmm. um, one of the things that people don't think about is the journey your participant goes through to get to sitting there with you mm -hmm. um, research should be as close to real as you can get in most cases mm -hmm. unless part of the study is being in an unreal scenario but that's another issue mm -hmm. so the ideal study is being invisible in the real world, but we know that's impossible. Mm -hmm. Most studies are still taking place in labs, so what you need to do is to do whatever you can to make it feel a bit easier. Mm -hmm. um, we go to a lot of spaces where, a lot of existing labs, where it looks like an office and they've plonked a computer in the corner with a camera. Yeah. That doesn't help your participant to feel in any way at ease. Put sofas in there, put curtains up, make it feel a bit nicer. Mm -hmm. And think about your participants' arousals along their journey. Let's say you're a company in central London and you're bringing people in for a, for a basic usability study. Mm -hmm. Participant number one has come to an unfamiliar place, travelled by a route they don't normally take, mm -hmm. come to an office they don't know, yeah. are surrounded by people they don't feel that comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And you sit them down and say, right, do this thing as if you normally would. How are they ever going to do that? Yeah. And the space itself and the feel of the space is very important. Yeah. The other thing is not having technical problems. Make it so that the researcher can focus on that participant and their job is just to do the research. Yeah. So they can just say, right, start recording, and then they don't need to worry about it. It just works. Mm -hmm. They trust the system. Mm -hmm. It's reliable. And they can then focus on the research they're doing and on the participant. Mm -hmm. Again, that helps the participant to be more at ease because the researcher can be just like you and I are now, just talking to each other face to face, instead of the researcher constantly going, hold on, I need to go and do a thing. Oh, I need to go and check over there. Yeah. We've all sat and observed studies where that happens. And it's not good for anyone. It's not good for the observers or the researcher, but it's certainly not good for the research itself. Yeah. So that's the, the kind of research lab. Yeah. And once you've got somebody kind of into the lab, um, let's take a uh, let's take a voice kind of application yep. that's being developed. 
you kind of there's a, a nice lab. We've got one of these UX lab in a boxes, which we'll uh, talk about and show a little bit more of uh, in further detail a bit later on. Once you've got them there, if you've made them feel kind of comfortable and, and what have you, what would then the process be? Um, or does it even start before then? What's kind of the general process for user research in a kind of voice environment? So, there are many sides of that. So, one of them being when we conduct a study with uh, something we can see, voice is invisible, right? So, yeah. Which is uh, much even more com complicated comparing to traditional UX studies. Mm -hmm. uh, when we conduct a study with something we can see, kind of, we can definitely see the participants action like for, action like for example if i click this button you you cannot see what uh, what i thought about that but it can, at least you can see my reaction yeah. next time when i click the different button that means that i thought about something differently right mm -hmm. with voice if i said almost the same thing slightly differently does it mean that i my my mental mod model changed or i see the product differently or just i decided to change the way how how i address that thing yeah. we don't know so that means that it's extremely important all the small details because if we change one, just one factor, it can significantly change the process itself. Mm -hmm. And we can start studying things that are actually not, not representative. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, the easiest way to emulate voice is just to have a person in front of you saying that, just imagine that I'm not a real person, I'm a virtual assistant, and what, do you, what would you like me to ask? And we try to do that, it just doesn't work, right. for multiple reasons. Uh, and the main, the main one being is that before you even ask me anything, we are biologically programmed to, to read user, like people faces, yeah. right? Yeah. So you hear my voice, you know that I'm a person, you immediately have a mental model completely different from what the mental model you would have if you talk to, to just a black box on the uh, front of the table, right? So we can conduct that status as long as we can. We are not going to get any real interaction and we're not going to learn anything about how you would talk to, to, to the system. Mm -hmm. So the first important thing is that you need a prototype that reels and sounds like, like a system you're, you're testing. Yeah, yeah. The second thing I would say, it's another trend that we found during research studies uh, when we conducted research on researchers mm -hmm. is that even five years ago, we tended to focus on just one media. For example, there was a study for, for a desktop or laptop or a mobile study. Mm -hmm. Now, in most of the cases, we just follow what people do. Mm -hmm. And people, people uh, tend to switch. Mm -hmm. You start your, your user journey on an Alexa, for example, then you s continue the, to track that story on your mobile device, and yeah. you go to work and you see the big screen. Yeah. That means in the usability lab, we need to be able to support that same level of flexibility mm -hmm. And you need, combining with the previous trend, is that you're only one researcher, you don't have a support yeah. uh, in the, another room. You should be able to follow the user journey in the usability lab without distracting neither you or the user from the process. Yeah. So I would say this is another very important requirement for usability labs in general, and specifically for voice. Mm -hmm. Another important thing is to be able to prototype early. Mm -hmm. So. To do your testing, you need people to, ideally, you want people to believe they're talking to a real system, yeah. but you need them to, you need, as a researcher, to be able to get that system to do what you want. Mm -hmm. So you want to be able to control it. So one way we do this is we developed our own Wizard of Oz software, okay. where someone could be sat here 
and we could give them anything and tell them it's a new device. We could say, oh, this is a bit like an, an Alexa or an Echo or a Siri or something, and we can control it remotely. So we can have it respond exactly as we want. Right. And we can either pre-program responses, mm-hmm. or you can have someone in another space, in the observation room, or literally anywhere, really, watching remotely, controlling the device. Huh. And people are... Whenever we do these studies, one question we ask participants at the end is their feeling about the system and uh, how they responded to it and what they got from it. Mm-hmm. And hardly anyone ever questions if it's real. Huh. We probably get one in a hundred people who even say, is it a real thing? Everyone else just assumes it is because they talk to it and it talks back in a computerised voice. (laughs) Why would they not think it's real? They don't know that one of us is in the other room frantically (laughs) typing away to respond. And even when you make mistakes, people are so used to Google Now and Siri going wrong Mm. that they're fine with it because they go, oh, it's it's like the other things, it's fallible. Yeah. So do do you genuinely just use like a... A sort of like small speaker or something, or do you use a Google Home or a, an Alexa? It depends what device? type of studies we're doing and which client we're working with. If someone's working on something that will ultimately be coming through Alexa, mm-hmm. we use Alexa. Right. We put we put an Echo on the desk, mm-hmm. and we're remotely controlling it using our software that we've we've created. Mm-hmm. Um, in other studies where people just want to use a voice interface. We either use a phone, because we have apps you can run on a phone where you remotely control what the app speaks, yeah. and just tell them this, and we can rebadge it. So let's say we're working for Client X. We can make it look like an app that Client X had built, mm. but it's really just our reskinned standard testing app. Mm. But often, it's just a Bluetooth speaker on a desk. Yeah. Um, what, what, what we sometimes do is, the brand of the speaker we're using, we get them to use that name. So if it's made by Sony, we just say, this system's called Sony. And they just interact with it. The trigger word is Sony. Yeah. And they just think that's triggering it just like when you say Siri. Yeah. But it's not. It's one of us in the other room responding to that. <laughs> so that's a way to very quickly prototype ideas and test um, small changes. Because yeah. uh, it allows you to test different language or different lengths of responses mm-hmm. or even the way the voice sounds. Because even within existing systems, if you write a skill for Alexa, you have some degree of control about how Alexa speaks. Mm-hmm. And with the Google Voice API, you have a lot of control. You can make it sound... It's usually f- the, the standard female computer voice, yeah. but you can make it sound very different. Yeah. So we do testing with people who are interested in... Um, one example is we were doing retention testing with a company where they wanted to see how much information can participants keep mm-hmm. when we talk to them. Because oh, a very right. big thing in voice research is the bandwidth between you and the system. Yeah. Um, if you think about the development of computer technology going back to... Let, let's start with what we call modern computers in, let's say, the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. The system was usually text input and text output. Mm-hmm. It gave you a very little amount of information and you gave it a little. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to the, I don't know, early 90s when the web started to be a real thing. Suddenly there were loads of information. It was all yeah. over the place. Fast forward another 10 years, resolutions get higher, the way we present information gets bigger, and we're still giving people lots and lots of visual information. So the bandwidth between the person and the system is extremely high. Mm-hmm. With voice, it's now tiny again. Yeah. It's really low. So one area I think there isn't a lot of research into, and we're, we're doing some with companies, but I don't think there's much academic research here, is how much can people retain yeah. with short responses or longer responses or even longer yeah. um, let's say you ask a question and 
we, we grab a response from Wikipedia. If I've typed that into Google, it's fine to give them the Wikipedia page because the person will pause it visually, take the information they want and make decisions on the fly without even realising. Yeah. With a voice interface, if the only responses we're giving are audible, we have to be making those decisions about what to tell them mm. as, as an answer to that question. Yeah. Simple questions are easy. So when people use Siri for questions... They, if they ask, what, what were the dates of the First World War? Mm-hmm. And I know that, that in itself is debatable, but it will go, let's say it will go to a knowledge graph system, find the dates and tell you. Mm-hmm. But if you say, what are the causes of the First World War? What does it say? <laughs> How do we give them that answer yeah. in a way that they're going to, it's going to be useful to them through just the speaker on the phone yeah. or on the system we're using? Yeah. So we do a lot of research into that area about how do we respond to people when they're using their voice only mm. with this very limited bandwidth? Yeah, because people are... Isn't it, they, they reckon that, you, that people have something like they can retain seven things at any one time in working memory or something like that? Well, that theory came from uh, psychological studies where you have seven numbers and then if you have eight numbers, then less people then think, think that basically uh, the bell curve is, right. is on seven. Right. But you think about... When you saw look uh, when you saw the, the numbers, do you still remember where you were? Like at what room it was? Were you alone or not? Uh, what what color was was uh, the number was? What font it was? What was the background? You still remember all those things, right? right, right. So it's really about kind of chunks of information that you can you can recall. Mm-hmm. But if you you can merge different bits in one chunk, and it still remains one chunk. Yeah. So. It's a matter of how you combine information, how you present that, right. and especially with voice. As soon as Kind of, especially after Alexa was launched, mm-hmm. uh, suddenly everybody assumed that the future is just voice without without yeah. screen. It's like all the users became blind <laughs> somehow. Uh, now it's getting better, mostly because Alexa is launching the uh, launched the, the, the new version with the yeah. screen. And but even very early on, that Amazon very quickly created the companion app. Yeah. They yeah. very quickly yeah. realized, oh, we do need a visual interface to go with this, mm-hmm. and it needs to be somewhere. So we'll just use the screen everyone has in their pocket. Yeah. Now they've taken that same thing and put it on the device itself. Yeah. So they're sort of stepping back away from voice only mm-hmm. and, go, and stay, sticking with voice first, mm-hmm. but that initiates the thing you want to do, yeah. and you then switch back to visual anyway. Right. Is that, the, is that what you've seen through, through the studies and things like that? Because you mentioned that at the start, Constantine, about mm-hmm. you know, doing studies on different devices, so someone might either start on an echo and then go on to the phone is that kind of what you've noticed through doing research is that people are pairing devices together and, and trying to get information from lots of different places rather than just so it depends on what kind of interaction people have because one thing we notice is that there's a huge difference between uh, voice search and voice actions mm. with voice search it's still a traditional type of interaction where you, you get some information through just the audio channel, right? It's still your responsibility to decide what to do with that information, and if something goes wrong, it's, it's you made the decision, right? So yeah. nobody else to blame. With voice actions, though, you you delegate the responsibility of the action, which affects you directly. Yeah. So if something goes wrong, there is a person or a system to blame. It's yeah. that thing uh, is bad, right? Yeah. So search-wise, people do everything. People use like any device they they can use. Mm-hmm. 
uh, action-wise, voice action-wise, it's a completely different story because there are so many factors there, like trust, for example. Mm -hmm. Trust in brand in general, trust in this specific uh, device, Mm -hmm. trust in this specific uh, feature in that device, Mm -hmm. which is completely different. Mm -hmm. And first of all, it's very difficult to evaluate for people, Mm -hmm. then people change their mental model of what they trust, what they don't trust, what they understand, what they don't, how to use it, how... uh, Another problem is that when the system is updated, you have no idea that it was, right? So you tried something yesterday, it didn't work. Why are you going to do it it today? You don't know. Or the other way around, you tried something yesterday, it did did work, now they updated the the knowledge graph and it didn't. And what what conclusion can you make from that? People's willingness to use voice actions often relates to how much they trust the delegation. Mm. And that often relates to the severity of it not working. So let's use the example of calling someone. If you say to your phone, call Steve, and it calls someone else instead, Mm. how severe is that? If I do a search and say, who's the president of Uzbekistan? but it gives me the president of another country, who cares? I just do it again. Yeah, yeah. So that in, in, in voice questioning, the delegation, most people tend to be okay with that because the potential negative outcome is, is usually zero or yeah. near zero. Yeah. But calling someone is big. Yeah. Calling the wrong person is a problem. Yeah. And that's just one example of calling. Yeah. What if I'm emailing someone? If I say... Email my friend to tell him I'm going to quit my job. What if it emails your boss to tell him you're going to quit your job and you haven't told your boss yet? The potential outcome there is very severe. So people's willingness to delegate actions through voice Mm. often relates to the severity of it not working and which obviously feeds into their trust in the system. And does that, yeah, so does that then have an impact on... Because I read something a few days ago which was, I think it was something to do with... The, the amount of people who've tried Siri and something didn't quite go to plan and then they've just not bothered with it again, even though, as you say, it might have been updated and other things might be working. Do you think that might have something to do with that in terms of if you try something and the severity of it might be dangerous Definitely. or whatever, then you might not Definitely, try yeah. again? Absolutely. I remember we had a uh, participant who... We showed how to use the voice assistant inside her phone, and she didn't know about that. Right. And she said, oh, it's fantastic. I'm going to sh- show to my daughter how to use that tonight, and she will love it. I'm going to talk to all my coworkers uh, during the, uh, the week, and on the weekend, I'm going to pop, and I'm going to talk about uh, that thing to all my friends. They don't know either. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, that's great. That means that we, we now we can test how people on board the process, kind ah, of people who haven't right. used them. And we said, uh, I'm going to use this system yourself like for in real, 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 real life. And she said, absolutely not. <laughs> and we're like, why? You, you, just, you just, just liked it like a second ago. Yeah. And she said, it's because my, my life is important for me. Uh, I just tried it once and once, uh, twice, and at once it just didn't work. And I don't know why. And there's a huge difference between search when you just have information just for your information. Mm. And then they, you delegate an action and the system does something to you. Yeah. Her example was that uh, she forgot a birthday uh, of her partner and she didn't want that to happen again. Mm-hmm. So she wanted some system to, to remind her about it for like, a couple of days before. Mm-hmm. And if you say, uh, let's say Siri, uh, Siri, remember about this day or remind me about uh, this specific day, mm-hmm. you have no idea how it's going to happen. Even if the Siri says, okay, and it looks like it understood you, what exactly that means? Mm-hmm. Is it going to send you a text message or email? Or is it going to ring the phone? Or is it going to be a small notification somewhere? 
that you can easily miss. Mm. So that means that kind of that was the moment when we understood that there is a huge difference between a search intention and the search process mm-hmm. and the action process. It's yeah. just a completely different stories. Yeah. And I think this is where most of the big companies, including Alexa, sorry, Amazon and, and Apple and Google, they still use the idea of the old product. Mm-hmm. Is that the search infrastructure is the same. So mm-hmm. and in many, ca- many cases, the algorithm be- behind the, uh, the virtual assistant is the same as voice search. Mm-hmm. So that means that works the same on the user side, which is not the case. Yeah. One comment we hear a lot from companies is we've made this voice thing as part of our thing, but people aren't using it. Why aren't they using it? And all they've done is voiceified what they already do, because they think it's the same mental model. People yeah. will use it in the same way, they'll just use their voice. Yeah. And it's not. If you're, if you, let's, let's take a very basic example of a website with buttons that do things. Mm-hmm. If you show people that... Their emotional state is important, their context is important, everything is important, but they still only have those buttons to choose from. So all those other things going on, the affordances that they see or feel, their emotions, still only affect their choice between what you give them. Turn that into a voice interface and suddenly they can basically do whatever they want and say whatever they want and ask whatever they want. And unless you nail them down in the old idea of like the IVR, the Interactive Voice Response System, mm. press 1 for, press 2 for, mm. if that's all you're going for, you can sort of replicate your system, but mm. what's the point of doing that? It's going to take them longer to do it with their voice. Mm. What people should be going for is a way for people to state an intent mm. and tell a system what they want. Mm. Whereas a lot of companies think we just need to voiceify what we do on the screen, yeah. and it just does not work that way. Yeah. So it seems as though you do quite a lot of. We've kind of touched about behavioural stuff, so the way that people would react to Siri, and the, the maybe it's trust or lack thereof in that respect, and the differences between how people might use a screen and, and a voice thing. When you're conducting these studies, are you looking for stuff like that, which is you just seem to have replicated your IVR system functionally it doesn't work or are you looking predominantly for behavioural things like that trust issue with Siri or does it completely depend I think it, it depends but what Kosti was just talking about is a lot more important to the way people use voice systems people want to be able to interact more naturally with them mm-hmm. so they don't want to be forced down alleyways uh, when you when when people start, if you take a person who's never used a voice assistant before, there's a very common trend, mm-hmm. which is they don't really know what it can do, mm-hmm. so they ask it a question. Mm-hmm. Often it's something very basic and searchy. What's the capital of Paris? Of, of France, sorry. <laughs> and they get the answer Paris, yeah. and then they go, oh, this is good. So their their trust in the system and their interest in it shoots up. Mm-hmm. They ask it something else, and they get an answer. How far is it from Land's End to John O'Groats? They get an answer. They go, oh, this is good. Trust goes up. Then they ask it something slightly more complicated. Mm-hmm. It falls over, doesn't give them the right answer or can't answer or says, I'm sorry, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Their trust goes through the floor and they may never use it again. Right. That's far more important, that, that those areas of interest in, in, in any voice system, really. Yeah. We're conducting a very interesting study at the moment. We are talking to real human assistants, uh, usually people supporting uh, their their bosses remotely. 
when people sit somewhere maybe in a different country but if you have a question you can either email that person or, or call call them and he will be able to, to reply and help you and we try to understand how people human assistant how they build trust what kind of tasks they can and cannot help and what people receiving the service what they need to change and I think the most important thing we learned is that initially we thought that the voice assistant is, is a thing that just does what you do what, what you say yeah. you say create a message it sends uh, creates a message mm-hmm. you create a, say create a reminder it creates a reminder mm-hmm. and this is what kind of bad assistants do because that means that you still need to, to think about, you still need to remember that yeah. it's still your responsibility to send the message yeah. if you send if you say that it's different message or to the wrong person it's still your 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 mistake right yeah. with a good human assistant you just explain what you want to do like for example you say i want to be healthier and when you next time when you see it at 1 a.m. watching a series, you say switch to another thing. The, the good assistant should say no. You should, you should really go to bed <laughs> because you wanted like there is a higher level goal that you wanted to achieve. Yeah. And that actually changes everything. That's a completely different story because that means that the system needs or a person needs to understand what you actually want, what's your end goal. Yeah. And then instead of just obeying everything you say it should guide you to that goal in the best possible way, yes. right? And that actually solves, I think, the biggest problem that people have right now. Like, right now probably we talk to each other and you have 100 different things competing in your mind for your attention. Mm-hmm. Different questions, things you need to do later today and, and so on. So right now it's not a problem when you don't have enough information or you don't, you don't know what to do. It's yeah. the opposite. There are too many things in your head that you need yeah. to pay attention to. And a good assistant can take a couple of things from, from your head. You don't need to worry about them at all. Like, let's say, uh, that person takes care about your meetings. Mm-hmm. If something goes wrong, if there, something might go wrong, they will let you know. Yeah. You don't need to worry about that. Yeah. So that is a, is a real assistant. Yeah. And it's not even close to any real product that I launched at the moment. Mm-hmm. Because all of them works on, uh, work on the assumptions that it's still your responsibility to think, to remember what to say, when to say something, yeah. what to say, and be in, in charge and being responsible for, for the outcome. Yeah. So we're conducting that study to understand, talking to real, real humans, to understand how the system might work and how to change from just voiceifying apps to a real entity that can actually help you as with your most important problem, yeah. like over over complicated life, yeah. rather than just adding one more thing yeah. there. Yeah, so that's that's quite interesting. So it's kind of, and you're right. You 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 almost need to you you're the one just doing the planning. If you're planning meetings via Google mm-hmm. Home or what have you. And then that's just kind of storing it, isn't it, as opposed to doing the whole management of it for you? That's it's the difference between a voice interface and a voice assistant. Yeah. The, the interface just does what you tell it. Yeah. It's Voice just becomes another input method. It yeah. just becomes a keyboard or a mouse or any other way of, of interfacing with the system. A voice assistant is much more like what Kostya was describing with a real human. Mm. So at the moment, you can say to Siri, um, set a reminder to send flowers to my mum on March, whatever yeah. Mother's Day is. Yeah. With a human, you wouldn't do that. Yeah. You wouldn't phone up your real assistant <laughs> and say, set a reminder to... You'd say, don't let me forget to send my mum some flowers. Yeah. And they would know what that means. They would interpret it and they would do a set of actions to ensure 
that your intent was 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 uh, was achieved. Yeah. We're very very far away from that with anything that's out there at the moment. Mm. Even the best in the world, Google Home or, or Siri or Alexa, yeah. is worlds away from that. But people expect it to be that. Yeah. A lot of people buying these systems and starting to use them expect to be able to do that, yeah. and they just can't. Yeah. So. It's it's much more interesting to do, to be doing research in that area about what do we need to do to bridge the gap between the voice interface and the voice assistant, yeah. and and what steps over the next ten years do we go through? Yeah. It isn't just about pointing an AI at it; mm-hmm. it's about teaching the AI what things mean and how they mean, yeah. but not. Not if this, then that. Yeah. We're never going to get anywhere near a real assistant through in Java doing, if this happens, do that. Yeah. If that happens, do this. Mm-hmm. It has to be something more than that. We have to be able to teach the system to interpret people's intentions, mm-hmm. which is much more complicated. Yeah. And it's very interesting that big companies that do have resources to do that, to work in that direction, yeah. they have... That a dog in that fight already. Like for example, take any big company, Amazon, for example, right? If when they launched uh, Alexa, it didn't sell you anything. It was yeah. just an interesting thing to try, right? It can yeah, yeah. play music, create reminders, uh, ask, ask could ask questions, and so on. Right now, as soon as they integrate much closer to uh, with the, with the, the biggest uh, business model. Mm-hmm. What what are they going to do with advertisement, for example? Yeah. If your personal assistant tells you, oh, you need to buy that thing, yeah. and if you you even suspect that the advice came because somebody else paid uh, Amazon for for advising that thing, it's not your personal assistant anymore, yeah. right? Yeah. Why are you going to trust it and, and follow any advice for that thing? Or take Google, for example. Uh, where is the place for advertisement in the, in the voice mm-hmm. interaction? Mm-hmm. Uh, when you say, for example, I want uh, how to get to, to a place, for example, and if it suggests you to take Uber or any other service, is it yeah. because that service is pays, uh, pays Google for doing that? Yeah, yeah. And again, it's not, not your, your voice assistant anymore, and yeah. the place for the advertisement is just questionable. Yeah. And it's the same story for every, every, everywhere. Like, for yeah. example, with, uh, with Apple, uh, if you ask a question and the best answer is not to use an Apple product and to use something else, is it really going to recommend that? Yeah. So that means that, again, it's our personal perspective is that companies that have resources to try to br- kind of match that gap and work in a different way, mm-hmm. they are the companies who are least interested in that because you make your billions now yeah. and you can take a risk and create something new that either kind of stop that revenue f- at the moment, mm-hmm. uh, right now, or you can just pretend that you do small steps in the old, uh, with the old product, kind of yeah. voiceifying things and yeah, moving yeah. it slowly and yeah. just waiting till somebody else does something, yeah. and then you have to kind of to bridge that gap. Yeah, is that what you're seeing mostly then? Is companies taking real small sort of baby steps and, and, and dabbling as opposed to going at it like, Yeah, it, it's easier to do that for them. Mm. They can they can do that research. They can say. What does it take to voiceify what we already do? Mm. How do we do that? Mm. That you can sit down and write a plan for how to do it. Mm. To do the bigger task of figuring out what how will people really want to use these systems, you have to 
be willing to, to go down blind alleys. You have to be willing to make a lot of mistakes in your research because you can't get everything right first time. If you're just voiceifying a thing, there's a fairly clear path to do that. If you're trying to actually figure out the best possible way for people to use their voice with your product, that's a much bigger, much longer term project to even start figuring that out. So people aren't doing those bigger, longer term bits of work. They're focusing on voiceifying what they already do because that's how companies tend to work. They want to have a project, say it will be done in six months and we will have an outcome from it. They don't want to say, let's let's try this, let, let's play around in this area. Yeah. That's much more difficult to do within a corporate structure. Yeah. And again, it's understandable because companies weren't born. They were created to support a specific product. Yeah. They have values and, and guidelines. And it's almost like a religion in big companies yeah. is that yeah. this is what, what we do, this is what, what's important. Mm-hmm. But... It seems that voice, specifically voice assistant, is a disruptive technology. Yeah. So you're not talking about the old product anymore. You're talking about something else. Yeah. And you try to squeeze a different product with different values, different characteristics in the old organizational structure yeah. that just built for something else. Yeah. And it's much, just much... Like, think about uh, Alexa, for example. Mm-hmm. As far as I remember, there were more than 20,000 skills in Alexa. Yeah. Just imagine you, you, you wake up tomorrow and there are 20 million skills in Alexa. <laughs> How is it going to change your life? Yeah. For the organization, it's the path, just updating the skills is just much easier than trying to figure out what's, what's your intention and taking risk and trying to make that gap smaller, mm. right? Yeah. It's much easier, like for example, if you're a manager in, for, in a bigger, bigger organization, you want to plan promotions of your people, mm-hmm. just say that, oh, this year we're going to launch another... 20,000 actions and this is how great it is and we're getting somewhere, yeah. right? Organizational-wise, uh, plan-wise, it's great, but it's not what disruptive innovations me- uh, need. Yeah. They need taking a risk and breaking the old, uh, the old, the old structure. Yeah. So what, what we're seeing when we talk to companies about voices, they want a definite thing they can do. Yeah. They want to create an Alexa skill. Yeah. They don't start with the question of, how do we allow our customers or our users to engage with their voice or their product? Mm. They start with, what can we do? What's the, yeah. what's the tech response that we can give? The tech response is create an Alexa skill. Yeah. So they create an Alexa skill without thinking, is that what we actually need? Mm. So we're seeing a lot of people wanting to come into this world, but not in, into the voice world and into the voice assistant world, but not really knowing where to start. Yeah. So they just choose from one of four options and they start there, which is understandable, but then we, well, often they come and talk to us because it doesn't work mm-hmm. and they want us to help them figure out why it doesn't work. Yeah. Why, why is no one using our Alexa skill? Mm-hmm. And our answer often is because people don't tend to use Alexa skills. They're not widely used. Yeah. Some are, a small number that are incredibly well-known and useful are, yeah. but of the 20,000 or 20 million, I don't know how many there are now, mm-hmm. Most of them, no one ever touches because it's just a tech response to a problem that might not need a purely technological response. People need to be thinking in a different way about how they move into the world of voice. So if if a company came to you then in in that exact scenario and Mm -hmm. said, you know, we we think that there's there's something in this voice thing, we want to kind of have a bit of an exploration, we want you to build us an Alexa skill... Um, 
what our, our, we want you to research our test our next scale or something like that. Yeah. There's a company that wants to explore voice. What would your kind of thought process be and how would that look if you were to go through a kind of piece of research with them to, to figure out what what problems they have and how it might be solved? So we are in a lucky position when we have a second part of the business, which is like the biggest part of the moment, building labs. Mm-hmm. So that means that we don't need to take all the projects and all the clients. Mm-hmm. So when the client comes and says, I want to build an exit skill, we usually start with, okay, what do you want to achieve? If it's just a marketing campaign that we want, now we are voiceified and we want yeah. to put it somewhere like on a, on a banner somewhere. Yeah, yeah. We, we, do, we do, usually don't do that. Yeah. We'd, ex- we'd normally refer them to companies that build Alexa yeah. skills yeah. and say, that's what they do. Yeah. We we don't do that specific bit of work for you. We we will we will investigate things for you. So. Yeah. so, our question would be, what exactly you want to achieve product-wise? Mm-hmm. If you want to, for example, if you have any issue with the product, like for example, people don't know about some features, or you suspect that there might be use cases when your product might be useful, but people don't use it, mm-hmm. we can connect the study and understand why it is the case. Mm-hmm. And in most of the cases, it's a combination of both voice, uh, graphic user interface, and learning, and, and different ways to send information to user and to teach them about how to, how to, how to use the thing. And it's much more complicated than just, yeah, we'll, we'll build that skill. If you say that, we'll do this. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, so, you kind of touched on a few challenges just then, what are some of the other challenges that you've found either in user behavior towards these voice things, onboarding you mentioned mm-hmm. um, earlier on, or even if you found any, you mentioned some technical limitations and stuff like that, is there any any other sort of challenges and what, what would the solutions be to some of those? One is keeping people using these systems. Very A story we very often hear when, when we start, let's say we're doing a piece of work with a company we recruit participants who are users of that system, they've never used voice before, or often if they have used any kind of voice interface, keeping them using it is incredibly difficult. Going back to what we said before about trust and people's trust dropping through the floor, their usage of the system often does as well. So a very common story is we'll meet someone, start talking to them about what they do with their Alexa or or something like that, and often they say, oh, I used to use that and they don't know. Mm. Or they say, oh, I, I bought it to do da, 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 X, Y, Z, but all I'd really do now is set timers in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And, or what, what very, very common, and I'll be honest, this is our main uses of, uses of Alexa in our office, mm-hmm. is just to play music. Yeah. It's a very nice interface for playing music. You yeah. put your Spotify account in or whatever you use, and it's a nice way to just say, play some erasure, play whatever. Mm. Um, but people don't go beyond that. Yeah. So, a big task for anyone trying to get um, their users using voice through one of these existing systems or directly into their product is keeping them using it. Because yeah. very often, you put a lot of work in to create your, your interface or your skill or whatever. People use it three times and then never, ever think of it again. Mm. So, a very big task is figuring out what can a company do to create such a good and nice and interesting experience for their user that it's pleasant enough that they want to keep doing it. So that was an example of product-wise. I can give a couple of examples, research-wise and Mm organizational-wise. So research-wise, there is a big question about 
what to, what do you need to research yeah. and how often you need to do that yeah. and what exactly like do you compare your product with a competitor or do you just keep researching and improving that thing and one thing we learned is that as soon as voice and specifically anything related to voice actions is so new people just don't know what to expect we just kind of as a, as developers we just starting to learn what it means to talk to something that is not a human right and i can give a couple of examples um one might be uh we had a product there were we basically we just fooled around with uh, different uh, different responses that pro- the product can give mm-hmm. using the the wiz of us uh, yeah. interface because you can easily change anything you want and it sounds real yeah. so the two options were the first one was when you create a message the system said uh do you want to save it and the second option was uh you create a message and the system says what do you want to do so for me as a person it's almost the same thing there's literally no difference like yeah. if you said that i would treat it absolutely different because i know what what you mean yeah. what we saw what how people reacted was that in the first case as soon as uh the system asked yes no question people assume that the system is not smart enough and can understand only like one utterance right. so after that people started to say no what do you want to change text how do you want to change that add this sentence do you want to change something else yes what do you want to change in the second option as soon as the system asked what do you want to do people assume that it's smart enough to understand when i just speak to it yeah. and people said um change the text at the sentence and then change the recipient and send it into to to ours so yeah. for us it was just a relation because this was such a subtle difference in terms of how we present information yeah. which completely changed the user mental model yeah. and we didn't expect it because and it, i would say that nobody would expect that because we just don't know what to pay attention during the the voice interaction yeah. and research wise i think the one of the difficulties is that you usually don't have that framework for just continuous research mm-hmm. keep asking the questions instead of just responding to your product team who said we have this specific research question is it yes or no yeah. should it be male voice or female voice this is what we want to learn yeah. and by doing answering those questions you miss the 99% of everything that really imports uh, really affects the product yeah. so it's for research wise um, organizational wise what we talked before is that when you create or when you conduct research for a specific product you and either work with your product team or you work with a client and for them it's very difficult to change their values because most of the organizational values they are not they're not obvious like for example uh some Google states that they, they openly say that that speed is extremely important yeah. because in web search speed is is really important. Yeah. That means that it's kind of a religion in Google at the moment. Yeah. You need to everything do as fast as possible. Yeah. Like this is the metric that almost like number one metric for everything. And in lots of companies across the tech industry, speed is the most yeah. important thing. We have to do it faster. How do we do things faster, faster? Mm. And it's just kind of a, an unquestioned given that speed is the most important thing. Yeah. If you if you can fight the latency you you you're good. Uh how do you define speed in voice? Like for example if if you say uh like for example if you wanted to create a reminder about next podcast tomorrow how would yeah. you say that? Let's say if I'm your personal assistant. 
Um, if, if you were my personal assistant uh, and, and I wanted to set a reminder to play me a podcast tomorrow, mm-hmm. I would say, uh, whatever it is, Alexa, uh, play VUX World tomorrow afternoon. Got it. <laughs> what, was it fast enough? That was probably a bit too fast. Uh, it, it's, it's another question too. Like, it's yeah. your uh, your perception of the trust of the system, right? Yeah. See, uh, that would that would make me think that it, it probably didn't get it because it was too quick to respond to me. Yeah, but you don't know. You have no yeah. idea. Yeah. So it's, speed wasn't that important in that interaction. Yeah. The type of response and the content was probably more important. Yeah. Another question is that what happens tomorrow? How exactly I'm going to, uh, to operate and the. The full task is when you start saying your intention and when the intention or the, the, the goal actually uh, was achieved. Mm-hmm. The goal is tomorrow. Yeah. So if I said get it right now, yeah. it looks fantastic. But yeah. if I don't do anything tomorrow and I do tomorrow in a way that you don't expect yeah. or in, in the wrong way, that means that speed right now doesn't matter at all. Yeah. It was actually a bad thing. It would be much easier a bet if I said, sorry, do you want me to send a message or do you want to create a reminder? Yeah. Which increases the, the, the latency and we, we define latency in technical terms dramatically yeah. and it just goes against the, uh, the core value of the, of the organization yeah. and organizational wise I would say this is a very important, difficult thing because if you really think that you, you, you want to create a disruptive innovation, you cannot be guided by religious <laughs> values that are completely true, and they yeah. they created for a good reason, but yeah. for a different different product in different different situation. Yeah. Okay, so if it's alright with you, we'll do uh, a really quick fire thing. Uh, there's a few things I kind of really wanted to speak to you about based on the conversation we have on LinkedIn. Um, so I'll do a really quick fire thing, yeah. five minutes, and then we can wrap up and then we'll get into the demo of the Lab in a Box, uh, which for everyone watching on YouTube will be epic, and we'll try and explain what's going on <laughs> for the people who are listening to the podcast. Yeah. Uh, it'll be a really good feature towards the end of this podcast, a bit of a reward for all you lot who've paid attention so far. <laughs> um, okay, so some of the things that, uh, Constantine, you mentioned that you've been working on at uh, Google, which I thought yeah. would be really interesting. Uh, to kind of define for those people who are, you know, either just getting into user research in the voice kind of space or who, um, you know, uh, wanted to do research themselves. Um, so some of the things that you mentioned that you were working on was, um, so design sprints, so how to, so you were organizing several um, design sprints on VUX. So really, really briefly, what does a design sprint look like? Mm-hmm. For, for you, or when you were at Google, what, you know, what, what does that sort of look like? So, in this case, I rather helped the design team to organize design sprints. There were a couple of design sprint masters in Google in London, Mark Pauline and Peter Hodgson. Uh, so, my role was uh, basically when we planned and conducted several design sprints, we found that you can bring different people to the room, you can change the context, you can make them think and feel differently, mm-hmm. right? The, same limitation is that it's still the same people who worked on the product mm-hmm. and it's still they still use the same assumptions and still the same vision of the product mm-hmm. you can try to, to change that but uh, it's pretty difficult to do so we started to think what what can be done there and uh, one thing we realized is that 
we learned so much from uh, user experience research studies that that would benefit the design sprints a lot. So we uh, experimented with merging design sprints and in UX research studies. Like for example, the first day, uh, everybody come together, they worked on a new product, a new idea. Then at the end of the day, researchers, in that case it was me, we thought about how to organize next day in the morning, how to organize very quick and reliable study that would get some feedback about that imaginary product in the, in the first day. And in most of the cases, you can do that. You don't need to build a, build a prototype. It right. can be just uh, smoke and mirrors. And in, in some cases, it works, yeah. in most of the cases. It was amazing to see how that small bit affected the whole, uh, the whole design sprint. Mm -hmm. Because instead of just thinking that, yeah, we can uh, put all the ideas on the board, and people can vote, and we can yeah. take all three, yeah. and then what are we going to do with the next 26? And maybe the best uh, option is first, 16th, and 20th, uh, 26th. Yeah. We don't know. Yeah. You need kind of injection from the real world, and you need to run your ideas through kind of the problems that people, people see through the, uh, from their perspective. Mm -hmm. So that was the big change that we made in London during design, uh, design sprint-wise, and it worked pretty well. Okay, cool. Um, some of the other things then, um, confirmations, you were kind of, you mentioned that you were working on um, user research studies, uh, you were saying you were conducting lab studies and field visits and stuff like that, mm -hmm. and all kinds of stuff around sort of confirmations, pivot in the action, interruptions, uh, presenting options and all of these kind of various things. So I'm wondering if we can kind of run through a few of these. So confirmations, what, what, what did you mean by confirmation? It's Basically, this the same example that we just discussed when you said, I want to do something, I said, yeah, got it, okay. Ah, right. So, as soon as, unlike graphic user interfaces, you don't see what's going on, yeah. it's even more complicated to understand, it's just me confirming that, yeah, you, 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 you've got it. Yeah. Right? So there are lots of options. If someone says to their, to their assistant on their phone or whatever, um, set a reminder to buy milk on Tuesday. Mm. It can go okay, or it can go okay. Reminder set, mm. or okay. Reminder set for Tuesday, yeah. or okay. Reminder set for Tuesday to buy milk. I will pop up a visual cue and an audio cue at this time in this way, mm -hmm. which is right. Yeah. To different people, different ones might be right, but you'll never know without you researching it, without looking into it. Yeah. Whereas at the moment, most systems just go with the okay. And how do you trust that? How do you know, even know what it means? Yeah. Take any more complicated example, like from real life. For example, you say, I want to talk to Mike. And the system said, yeah, I'm, I'm placing the call for, so you, can, you can talk to Mike. Maybe it wasn't your intention. Maybe it was, I just want to talk to Mike, to Mike remind me about that. Yeah. Or I want to message uh, him. I want to uh, send him a you know, WhatsApp message or something. So... And that's even the mo not the most complicated bit. The most complicated is when you have an intention and you cannot say in one breath everything you want to say mm -hmm. because this is how most of the system work right now and this yeah. is how people perceive. We've seen so many times when people go to the lab and they say, after a lot of failures, people say, okay, I'll, I'll do it right this time. So, remind me tomorrow to call my mom to tell her about this thing and then I want to send her a text message and, and, and so on and so on and they, yeah. uh, they pause in the middle because it's just too complicated and the systems went, uh, went blank and said sorry I don't understand it damn <laughs> I need to do it again so 
how we do it in his humans, we ju- you just start with anything you want, yeah. right? Because you know that I'm flexible enough to understand that. Yeah. And confirmations in this case doesn't mean that you have a specific strict formula and in this specific place we want to ask confirmation. Mm-hmm. Confirmation means that we have a network of kind of from you saying anything mm-hmm. to you achieving your attention. Yeah. And the confirmation is at the moment when we are not sure that we actually understand you correctly, we place a sign saying that, just confirm that it's, it's correct. Or do you want to pivot at this moment? Yeah, yeah. So it's much more complicated than just a typical approach taken by most of the, uh, most of the right. products. And so, also, just because something has been confirmed, in most systems now, I, I can't think of any that don't do this, they move on. They just assume you definitely want that, mm. and you can't really change it in that flow. Yeah. You've confirmed a thing, and then you might go to a human. You might go, oh, actually, no, let's do it. Yeah. Try doing that with any voice assistant or voice interface. It will just go, I'm sorry, I don't understand. Yeah. What do you mean by, oh, actually, let's do it? Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't let you re-pivot back around and, and change that thing. Once you've confirmed, that's it. it, it, it you're definitely doing this thing. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, again, it was another thing that we learned how flexible and powerful our voice is when two people talk to each other. Mm-hmm. Think about how you order f- a- from the menu in the restaurant. Yeah. You have a menu with a limited option. It's the easiest task possible because <laughs> you know what to expect. Another person waiting for you to order knows to, to, what to expect too. And it's still, uh, what about this thing? I have, I'll, I'll probably take this one. Is it vegetarian? No, okay, I'll, I'll switch to something. What about that one? So yeah. the interaction flows very unpredictably and it's very difficult to formalize that. Yeah. And it's the most simplest uh, example. Let's take any, uh, any real task from real life. It's much more complicated. Yeah, that's, that's wicked. Um, what about mental models then of um, voice assistants and actions? You mentioned mental models. What do you mean by, mm-hmm. by mental models? So when we start working with something, we create, we have a very complicated mental model of what it is, what it can do and what it cannot do. Mm-hmm. We, we kind of program to do that. We do it all the time without thinking about that. Like, for example, when I, next time uh, you're on the tube, look at the two people you don't know and think about how would you talk to them. Mm-hmm. In most of the cases, it will be different way or different way to address them, different topic to talk about. Mm-hmm. You don't know about anything, anything about them. Mm-hmm. But you, you read a lot of subtle clues by from how they look, how they behave, how old they are, and so on. So, with any tool, including voice, and specifically voice assistants, people start using them with some assumption, expectation, uh, some trust level, and that model is pretty complicated. And that model, in most of the cases, is wrong, because they, th- they think in, in front of you it's, it's just a box, they don't know what it is. Uh, the existing mental, mod- mental model is created either your previous experience, like for example, you just watched Star Trek, your expectation can be very high. You can ask anything <laughs> you want, right? If you just had painful experience uh, of calling your bank when you said, you said, we were told, press one if you want to, to do this, press two if you don't want to do it, press 25, and so on, your expectation is very low. Yeah. And that means that the mental model is never correct, yeah. and that it's going to hurt your experience, whatever is too low is too high. Yeah. Uh, so, one of the di- most difficult tasks, research and design-wise, when we talk about voice assistant, is to identify where people's expectation is, what exactly they think about the system, and in what, in what instances it's wrong, and how to correct that mental model to actually say, you can say more than what is 
the age, what is the age of Barack Obama? Because people is uh, the system is smarter than that, yeah. but not smart as, as to say, tell me something about Barack Obama that I don't know. So how to level that mental model to the exact level that we can support with the system, so people are not frustrated that it doesn't work, yeah. and at the same time they use the full, fun full functionality of the thing. Yeah. It's most, one of the most difficult tasks, both in research and design. Yeah. Your mental model of anything is constantly evolving, but the system itself can help you. Yeah. It can do things to sort of guide the way you perceive the system. Mm -hmm. So it's important, if a, if a system can only do certain things, it's important not to do things that make people think it's better make people think it can do a lot more yeah. that's one way to lose trust instantly yeah. if you make out let's one example might be if you make a voice assistant that's fairly limited but you make an advert on tv showing it doing loads and loads of stuff yeah. you're not helping because people come to it with the mental model based on that advert of oh i can do all these things yeah. as soon as they try to do them it radically changes how they perceive the system and you've lost their trust yeah it's exactly what's 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 happening with all the products because yeah. marketing-wise, it, it looks fantastic. Yeah. You look there, you watch the TV advertisement, and it says, "Alexa, tell me a joke," and it tells you a joke which is sometimes is funny. Yeah. So your expectation is, as soon as the voice is is, is natural, your expectation is that oh, it's like talking to a person. So your expectation is the intelligence of the person who can take, uh, tell this joke, yeah. and it's not even close. So. By doing that, they actually break the user mental model, and the only thing they guarantee, they guarantee is that when you do something useful for you and important for you, you are going to be frustrated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so now we are going to take a closer look at the UX lab in a box. We're going to have a little bit of a live demo, we'll show you the unit, we'll show you it all up and running, we'll show you the setup, uh, and Constantine can uh, take us all through it. So basically, as we said, uh, the whole idea was born when we conducted voice studies, because the research lab must be so flexible to reflect everything up to what's, what's going on in the lab, mm -hmm. and we started to think about what can be done. And we conducted research on researchers, and we identified both trends and trends what's happening uh, with research right now and issues that most of researchers have mm -hmm. and the lab was born so it was it's the second version it took us about two years to create that thing and it's a box that contains everything all the cameras all the connectors everything you need is just in one box it's one uh, power plug uh, you connect the thing and in about 10 minutes you can convert any space it can be any room or a corner in cafe, for example, to their uh, best UX labs in the world. So it works almost fully automatically on the, on, the, uh, on the lab side, and on the researcher side, we simplified everything uh, as much as we can. So there are several things that researchers need to do with with the video. The first one is uh, when we plan this, uh, the study, we need to think about what exactly we're going to share after that, mm -hmm. about uh, having the video material that 
is representative and convincing to the product team. Mm -hmm. And we automated everything to have everything uh, rendered on the fly. Mm -hmm. So when you press the stop button at the end of the study, your video file is, video file is ready. You can start sharing it with, with, your, with your team. Mm -hmm. You can broadcast live through a private YouTube channel, for example. That means that at the end of the study, you can add deep links to the video. So you mm -hmm. can say, at this specific moment, this has happened. And you can do it literally in the next minute when your study is over. Uh, I can give you a couple of examples how it actually works. Yeah. So, um, when you can start your study with uh, saying that I want to let's let's take a new new one. I want to start with stud a study with uh, opening title, and the opening title would be VX World. Um, just recently, we updated the, the lab to meet a lot of GDPR requirements. Like, for example, you can say that in your company there is a policy to delete all the user videos in 90 days. Mm -hmm. You can specify the, both the policy here and if the policy is, uh, should be applied for this specific video. Mm -hmm. And it will show you on the screen that the lab should be deleted at this specific date. It's just one of the examples of how GDPR should be just not just a part of your procedure, how you conduct studies, it should be a part of the infrastructure as well. Mm. Because most of the artifacts that we create as researchers, they do contain the personal information, so yeah. we need to care, take care of that too. So the next thing is that you basically you create a, a workflow for your study. You say that I want to start with interviewing the participant. And all the camera, cameras are color-coded. This is a green camera connected with a green cable that goes to the green input in the lab, which is which name is green, and it's green on the controlling device here on the tablet. So you can say, I want to start with interviewing the participant, and it is green, just that, it's green. So then I'm going to uh, ask the participant about the, the device they're using, and it's yellow. So we said it's green and yellow, and I want picture in picture, and green, yellow is the most important. I want the device. Then you want to say that I want to talk to the participant and I want uh, a larger view. Then we have another camera which is blue there in the corner. And you say I want green and blue and I want them side by side. So green, blue, side by side. Done. And then in the end you can say that I want to see everything. So I want to see uh, participant, which is green, I want to see the device, yellow, and I want to see how participants interact with the device, with their uh, top camera, which is red, picture in picture. So this is your, your flow for your study. You prepare everything, you can even introduce the participant, you can say that I want the participants be introduced like user uh, 4, uh, Again, that helps GDPR a lot because you need to you don't need to think on the fly about how to, what to uh, say about the participant, and it's Android user. Well, in this case, it's iPhone user. iPhone. Okay, so our study is ready. We bring our participant and we say we sit them at the desk and we say we want to start recording the study. You can both record and broadcast on YouTube. As soon as you click the button, it's live on YouTube on the private channel. Uh, we start with the opening slide, it shows what the study is about, 
then we can switch to interviewing our participant. And so essentially, what you what you've got there then for mm-hmm. those of you um, listening on the podcast, what we have is essentially uh, a front end that's allowed you to essentially kind of pick the different views that you want to use throughout the entire study. Is that right? That's what you're kind of pre-prepared yes. there with all the different cameras you want to mix together and stuff. So basically it's all views, all combinations of all views of, uh, from all multiple cameras and multiple devices that you, you think you will need during the study. Mm-hmm. You can create a couple of them just in case. Mm-hmm. And all you take during the study to switch between them is just a click of a button. And okay. you immediately see uh, the response on the screen. Everything is recorded and rendered on the fly automatically. And... It's being recorded both on board in the box and uh, can be recorded live on, on any cloud, cloud platform as well. So, like, for example, one of the biggest issues we, we saw, especially with voice studies, is when we want to switch from using one device, device to another one. In this case, it's just a click of a button. You click a button and you can see people using their, their phone in real time and we have the screen shared on, this, uh, on the large screen and we can see the participant using the device. If we want to switch to something else, let's say we want to switch back to interviewing the person, we just press the button and it's the person again. If we want to see multiple sources at the same time, this is we found the most useful view for both voice and mobile studies. You want to see the screen in high resolution. You want to see what participant is doing. And we want to see their hands because many, many cases people think with their hands. They don't do anything but they say like, I would click, uh, no, not here, I would click here, and nothing happens. Yeah. So if you just record the screen, the screen is not enough. We need to see both their facial reaction, what they do with their hands, and how this, uh, the device reacts to that. And at the end of the study, we switch to the slide again, and we know exactly when to delete the video, we know what the video is about. So, half a year later, instead of having hundreds of files where just participants talking about something, you have the all information uh, about what the study is about, when it was conducted, by whom, when the ne- video needs to be deleted, and it's, it's automatic, you don't need to do anything. guys for that that was absolutely epic that was such an interesting episode thank you for setting the time aside to speak to me uh where can people find out more about ux study if they want to either build a lab or they want to do some kind of in the field research where can they find out more about ux study and where can they find out more about yourselves so they can check our website ux-study.com we're the same on twitter and then my personal twitter is adam G- at adam g banks cool. Please follow me at Konstantin uh, Samoylov and if you want to try a lab or thinking about just updating or uh, building a lab, please talk to us, we're happy to help. And you also sell the UX lab boxes yeah, as well, do you? it's a system we use ourselves and it's also a system that's, that's for sale. You'll find a lot of these in lots of companies all over the UK in use as the heart of their UX system. Cool, fantastic. Well, thank you very much. Nice one. Thanks a lot.